Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Village Global's Venture Stories. I'm here today joined by a very special guest, Eric Rosenblum of Ching Yuan Ventures. Eric, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. We're, we're here today to talk, talk about China, uh, to talk about the relationship between US and China and how that impacts technology and, and investing. Eric, why don't we start with you? What's your background and what's the Ching Yuan story? Great. And I think it's a great place to start uh, really to go into the more generic topic of China and the US, uh, deep tech investing and other topics. Uh, so first, just to uh, say from the outset, we're a U.S. fund. Uh, we're run by U.S. citizens, uh, but there's a China background, which I'll get into. We're about a $100 million fund, and we invest only in the U.S. and Canada, focused on the seed stage. And we generally make a million-dollar seed stage checks. We're fairly broad in our interests. Uh, so about 50% of the fund is in software, 30% life sciences, and 20% deep tech or frontier tech. So it's similar if you know Coastler, DC, VC. Uh, it's a pretty broad fund in that respect. Now, the background is that we are the successor to a fund called Teak Angel Fund. Teak stands for Qinghua Entrepreneur and Executive Club. As the name suggests, it's a group of people that came from Qinghua University in China, which is often called the MIT of China or the IIT of China. And they came to the States, got PhDs, and became very successful entrepreneurs. But they recognized that they didn't really know the Silicon Valley VC ecosystem very well. And so they decided to start their own fund to really help people like themselves. And the fund was incredibly successful. Uh, they were the first money in Zoom video, which we're using to chat right now. And that's obviously been a huge story during COVID. Uh, but also the first money in Quantergy, which is uh, solid-state LiDAR, Ginkgo Bioworks, Plus.ai, which is the leader in self-driving trucks. And so remarkably, in the last 10 years, it was the the seed uh, investment for five unicorns. And there are a bunch more queued up along the way. Uh, so that's the background uh, of the fund. Now, my own background is kind of the mirror image of that. My partners all came to China from the uh, to the U.S. from China in the early 1990s for PhDs. I went from Harvard to China in 1992 and stayed there for about 14 years. Uh, first, I was part of the first associate class with BCG in Shanghai, and then I started one of China's first payment companies that's now part of Ping'an Group. Uh, and then when I came back to the States after 14 years, I was at Google as a product director in commerce, and one of my lead engineers was a member of this Tsinghua alumni group. And obviously, China has been in the uh, the news a lot recently, often regard to the deteriorating relationship between between U.S. and China. But before we cover that, though, why don't you give me a sense for the differences between the two markets? How is it different being an internet founder versus investor in China? So first, uh, just I, I love to think about the context, which is for all intents and purposes, China plus the U.S. is essentially the entire tech market. Uh, so from a value perspective, the two countries have 90 percent of the value of all unicorns. There's 87% of articles on deep learning come from scientists in one country or the other, or sometimes both. Uh, more than 90% of venture capital dollars come from the two countries. So basically, the rest of the world has almost become a rounding error. It really is these two markets. They're pretty different, though. And 
uh, I'm going to plug a book, which is Kai-Fu Lee's uh, AI Superpowers. I think it's fantastic and everyone should read it. And he goes into this in a lot of depth. But in a nutshell, China's all about speed and execution. So huge scale and very nimble founders. Whereas the U.S. really focuses on strategy and product. They take time, find product market fit, really kind of incrementally improve things. Uh, whereas China really is just about scale. And specifically, it's about data scale and application. So if you think about AI, the fundamental breakthroughs are extremely rare. And you have people like um, uh, you know, Jeffrey Hinton, Yen LeCun, uh, Yoshia Bengio. Um, and so huge breakthroughs come, you know, 10, every, every 20 years or so, or 30 years, uh, and from a very small number of people that are generally based here. But in China, the scale of application is much bigger. So they're 50x the scale that we are in mobile payments. They're 10x now in terms of rideshare. And all of this just generates data. Um, and valuable data sets. And so they're moving much faster than we are in certain key industries. And then the final area, there's a lot more interest in what I would call dirty tech. There's a lot more manufacturing and logistics. Uh, there's, and so that sector, so if you look at anything around industrial controls or materials, China has a well-established sector, whereas the US is just not a popular area for people to start or invest in. And then finally, B2B is underdeveloped in China relative to here. Uh, basically because B2C is so big uh, that there just hasn't been a market that's developed in the VC world, or if you're a startup person, uh, it's not the most promising place to start. Uh, so the two markets are have some commonalities, but are kind of different in their approach. I, I think we've come to think of the two markets as, as wholly separate. Google, Amazon, eBay, others have famously lost their Chinese counterparts, and their Chinese counterparts have never really tried until TikTok to enter the U.S. market. Is this still the case? I think we are seeing the very early stage of something that might be a sea change. And I could be wrong about this. You know, I think you, you said it exactly right. We've been trained to think that U.S. companies cannot compete in China. And Chinese companies are only going to try to crack China. And more recently, uh, you know, they've cracked Southeast Asia and Africa, where I suppose, you know, eBay must be duking it out with Alibaba for supremacy in Africa. Uh, but we've come to think of these as very separate spheres of influence. But what's changing is that for many decades now, a significant portion of the PhD students and uh, math and science students in general in the States have come from China. So now 18% of our PhD students in America have Chinese passports. And that's been going on for several decades. But what you're seeing now is the rise of this entrepreneur class and so if you think about, in particular, AI, DeepMap, Neuro, WeRide, Plus, uh, Subtle Medical, these are all based in the Bay Area, but all of them have co-founders that are originally from China, and they have the ability to compete in China. So even some non-AI startups, and you know, most logically, Zoom Video. So Eric Yuan is from China. He was brought over by Minju, who was the uh, co-founder of WebEx, also from China. And... You know, so you're beginning to see these kinds of founders. And so what is the chance that Zoom becomes the dominant, uh, the, do the dominant video messaging or the dominant video conferencing program for China? It's extremely high. So for the first time, you'll have a U.S. company in the Internet world that dominates China. And uh, part of that is because, you know, Zoom from very early stage had a giant Chinese engineering team. Eric Yuan himself knows how to operate there. They know how to hire sales leaders. Uh, another example, 
the three leading competitors to become the Waymo of China. Uh, so that's WeRide, uh, Pony.ai, uh, and XAuto are all based in California. And again, it's because their top engineers came from Google and Baidu Research Lab in Sunnyvale. And they've built their families there and their careers there, and they're still based there. Um, so, you know, the U.S. may very well end up having the headquarters for the top self-driving car companies of China. So anyway, um, just to generalize this, in our portfolio, there's a kind of a playbook that we're seeing that I find absolutely fascinating. And I'll just give one example. Uh, and I, it's actually one that we both share. As a touring video is a village global portfolio company. It's also a Qingyuan portfolio company. And it really is the best example for the way we operate. Uh, it was founded by a guy named Cao Song, who's a PhD. He's actually from Tsinghua, so he's from the, the, the school that our fund is named after, uh, but then got his PhD at USC. And while he was there, there was this horrible campus shooting. Uh, and so I don't know if you remember this, but there was a USC campus shooting. And USC, like every place that has a horrible shooting, they hire hundreds and hundreds of security guards. And so here's this young PhD student from China who is studying uh, a field called activity recognition. So how do I use computer vision to recognize if two people are fighting? Are they hugging? Is someone carrying a gun or not? And just amazed that our reaction is to hire a bunch of you know fairly low-wage people to stand on corners trying not to fall asleep all day. He's like, there must be a better way to do this. And so he started this company really to use uh, video analytics to solve the problem of security. And they started with robots. And originally he had a patrolling robot and they had a video analytics system. They partnered with Securitas. Um, they got a few big corporate campuses, so applied materials and LinkedIn had their robots patrolling parking lots. And that's like classic US enterprise sales. You get a few of those, you rinse and repeat, you run pilots, you try to grow those pilots. And over time, hopefully you get up to you know, 5 million ARR, then you raise your next round, and then you get a bit bigger, and then you try to get up to, you know, 20 million ARR. But at the same time, his China team started talking to China's largest real estate developer called Wanda. Their first order was for 15,000 cameras and several hundred robots. And so overnight, Turing has far more video analytics data than Verkata, Deep Sentinel, any U.S. company you've ever heard of. And it's because they're taking advantage of the scale and speed of China, along with some top researchers based in the U.S., and being able to build a company far faster at larger scale than anyone else. Um, so anyway, just to summarize, our, our big learning from this playbook is that the U.S. CIO views their job as defensive. They're there to make sure that, by God, you will not destroy our production stack. And they'll put you through security review, legal review, performance review until you finally get the enterprise contract. A Chinese CIO views their job as strategic. They're there to find small advantages uh, to make the company move a little faster, be a bit better. And so if you can play both sides, it's just an incredibly valuable thing to a startup. So anyway, so we've observed this playbook and we think that it's going to continue. And so we think these markets may be more porous than, uh, than people had realized. And we have you to thank for the uh, introduction to, to, to Turing, Eric, and, and we're glad we, we made that investment with you. Let's zoom out. Is the current direction of the U.S.-China relations disruptive to, to this thesis? Yeah. So the very short answer is yes. 
it freaks the heck out of me, mostly as an American. I, I, I don't like seeing kind of destabilization in the world and kind of, uh, you know, retreat to nationalism. So first, just as putting my hat on as an American and as a, a person that believes in peace, it's bad. From an investment standpoint, it's also not good. Uh, however, from a very tactical standpoint, the first thing the Trump administration did was tighten the rules around a body called CFIUS, which you're probably aware of, but for people on listening to this, it's the Committee on Foreign Investment in the U.S. And it's been around since 1974, and its department is chaired by the Treasury Department, but many U.S. Uh, governmental departments sit on this committee. And it was originally formed when we were worried that Japan was taking over the U.S., so it's a body to make sure that foreign companies can't buy up strategic U.S. assets. But as you might expect, we're much more concerned about China these days. And so two years ago, the Trump administration uh, passed a set of rules that are known as FIRMA, uh, which was to supposedly modernize this set of rules and make it so that it's no longer just about ownership of U.S. asset, but it's about access to information. And so any Chinese entity that need, that has the ability to access what's called material non-public technical information uh, can be barred from certain categories of investment. Now, perversely, this benefited us because, as you remember, we're a U.S. fund and we're all U.S. citizens. We happen to understand China very well and we came from China and many of us built our careers in China originally, but we're from America and we're based in America. Our fund is a Delaware fund. And so perversely, what happened is many funds that follow a similar strategy to our own are actually from China. As a result, they basically left. Uh, and these are names like Gen Fund, uh, Sinovation Ventures. Uh, so that's Kaifu Lee's firm, which is amazing. Uh, but they're operating mostly in China today because it was very difficult for them to operate in both places. So the short term thing for us was actually quite good. Long term, I would be worried because, you know, Again, our prototypical investment, we just talked about Cao Song from Turing. Uh, he arrived in the States, studies for five years at, at USC. Typically, our sweet spot is a little bit after that. He would do a postdoc and then get a job at the AI group at like Google, and now he's starting a company. So normally, you're looking at about eight to 10 years after someone arrives on US soil, and then they're a perfect investment target for us. And so if... Uh, the top scientists from around the world decide to stop coming to the U.S. and they decide to go elsewhere, like Canada or, or Great Britain or you know anywhere. It would be bad for everyone, uh, but in particular, if this flow of talent from China starts to decline, it would hurt us. But we wouldn't see it really affecting us for a few years out. Uh, you know, potentially as much as eight years out. Uh, but you know, again, we watch this with with some concern. Many of us believe in free trade and a highly globalized world. At the same time, many of us also think the U.S. relationship with China need, needed a reset, given rampant IP theft, lack of respect for human rights, etc. At the same time, we are in a battle for tech supremacy. So what should we do? Yeah, th this is a hard one. And I wish I had a, a really good answer, but I'll, I'll give my thoughts and then, you know, happy to discuss with anybody. Uh, but first, I think this idea of a technology war with China is vague, and people have this kind of existential dread, but they're not sure exactly what they dread. And I'll contrast this in the case of the Cold War. You have the Soviet Union that is aggressively expansionist. So they're literally taking territory and they're exporting an ideology and a system of government 
that was explicitly incompatible with liberal ideals. And so there was a situation where if you're sitting in America and you think if we don't intervene, the entire world is going to be under a hostile government. The Chinese government is definitely illiberal. Like, you know, don't get me wrong. Uh, it's authoritarian. They do awful things. But it's what we're, you have to be, to be blunt. We have dealt with them for decades under this illiberal regime. And we deal with many other authoritarian governments. What seems to have us freaked out is commercial rivalry and technical rivalry. And so in that case, I understand to the extent that this has to do with, say, military supremacy. But to be blunt, you know, we spend more on military than next, like, I don't even know what it is now, 12 countries combined. I believe the core of our anxiety has to do with commercial anxiety. China is going to, quote unquote, beat us in AI or beat us in robotics. And in that case, I think the absolute worst thing we can do is reversion to protectionist policies. And this is what we all learn in EC 101, right? That the, the mercantilists, you know, the, the kind of uh, protectionist regime was horrible for innovation and free trade. And once people started becoming free traders, this is why traditionally Republicans were free traders, was that spurs innovation. And, you know, I think about it as like Google versus Comcast. Comcast competes through monopolies and tries to keep everybody out of their territory and tries to get the U.S. government to regulate away competition. Whereas Google in general tries to support kind of open standards and they just believe they'll beat everybody in the end. And those two things, I hate to see the U.S. turning into the Comcast of like the competition world. I just think it's not in our interest. I think we traditionally have been the innovators and that resorting to, uh, you know, severely protectionist policies, I think is the opposite of what we want. And furthermore, I just don't even think it works. You know, cartels are famously difficult to maintain. And so the most frightening example we saw in the news this week, you know, China has now struck deals with Iran. If China had interest or believed that the U.S. was still trying to include China as part of a global multilateral trade regime, then China would not be dealing with Iran in this manner. But they think, well, we're being excluded. Iran is being excluded. Uh, we want Iran's oil. Iran wants our technology. Now we're in bed with Iran. And now your move, you know, President Trump. And that sucks. You know, we've tried to isolate Iran, which is a really kind of, you know, dangerous regime. Uh, and now they're undermining that, let alone our friendly allies like, you know, France, Germany, UK. We had to pull every stop to get the UK from getting 5G from Huawei. How long do we think that's going to last? What do we have to pay them to take worse technology instead of that? And so I just think it's an unsustainable way of being. So anyway, what I think we should do is I think our trade agreements should be modernized. They're all built around steel quotas, who has to import autom automobiles from whom. And they need to recognize that we are now a uh, service economy. Our leading industries are finance, technology, and entertainment. They, they don't really do well under a trade regime that was built around goods and focus on IP protection, but really work through international bodies. And finally, we definitely should consider human rights in our relationship with China, but it's going to have to be multilateral. So we need to work with a lot of other countries to be consistent in the way we deal with China. And again, our current direction is isolationist. And I think that's also the opposite of what needs to happen. Uh, so anyway, so I, I'm not pleased with, with the direction of foreign policy more generally, but specific to China, I, I think it's wrong on almost every front.
What do you say to the Peter Zehan argument? I'm not sure if you're if you've read his stuff. But basically, he says that you know we may have actually had much more leverage in these trade negotiations than we realized because we are now energy exporters, and, and there's uh-huh. not much that we rely on China for. But China, without us protecting the their trade routes, would implode. Uh, or sorry, if, if we sort of go home, uh, so to speak. China would implode or in, in various different ways. And so, so they're basically going to agree to anything we, we suggest as long as we protect, protect those trade routes, which we don't have to do for ourselves anymore. Yeah. So I haven't read his argument. I mean, so based on your synopsis of the argument, I, I'm not sure I would totally buy into that, that China views the U.S. kind of global security regime as completely – um, you know, uh, aligned with their, with their own interests or critical to their trading interests and commercial interests. Uh, however, I would say that we had a strong hand. And I think that we've generally, I, I think we've kind of frittered it away by essentially, you know, using only the hammer and, you know, viewing China as a present and existential threat that needs to be halted at all costs from, uh, you know, any kind of, uh, of access to quote unquote U.S. technology. And to unpack that a little bit, the quote unquote U.S. technology is not even necessarily U.S. technology. This is research and research is increasingly global. And so things, when we talk about AI as a, as a class example, the big breakthrough occurred in 1986 with like Jeffrey Hinton's paper. And then everyone else has just been running applications on top of it and also publishing their findings on, on that. So the knowledge is pretty global. It's just now a matter of researchers applying that knowledge more and more quickly. Uh, but even these teams are often global. And so the idea that, you know, somehow keeping, uh, you know, students off campus is going to stop the flow of information, I, I think is, is ludicrous. It's not the way research works. Uh, but in terms of the national security implications or, or how strong our hand was or how strong our hand could be, it's, it's fairly strong. I think China, uh, really did not want to have to develop a lot of their own industries. Uh, they were quite happy relying on Qualcomm for certain kinds of chips and Intel and, you know, relying on, you know, basically trading relationships that have been developed for decades that work quite well for both sides. And what the U.S. has done is frightened China into having to become almost completely self-reliant. And so they will build a fully-fledged competitor to Intel and Qualcomm now. They will build you know, their own competitors to several of our major industries because they're scared that the U.S. is going to keep pulling you know, the rug out from under them and try to control them through you know, certain kinds of, of exclusive IP. Now, uh, so I would agree with thesis that we had a strong hand. I think our hand is becoming degraded because we've we've pushed China into a position where I think for their national security now they need to deal with decoupling uh, and be able to decouple, uh, which they weren't able to do before. Yeah, so I I don't think hard decoupling is actually going to happen, but I think that this the the factors that will allow decoupling are being put into place by both sides, and I don't think that will be good for either side. Yeah. And it, just to bring the argument in the room that, that's not clearly in the room, I, I think, you know, someone who's justifying the current trade path that we've taken the past, you know, few years would say, hey, China's sort of been having an unfair deal for a long time. And now we're finally standing up for ourselves. And obviously, that's a broad statement. and People can disagree on, on various different components uh-huh. of it. The other thing, just just more specifically on the Zehan thing, he would say 25% of China's energy, I, I think, or oil needs, I think, comes from the Persian Gulf. 
And if we don't protect those trade routes, you know, Japan has a much stronger Navy. And so there are, you know, there could emerge like conflict over, over that. And, and that's a, you know, existential issue for, for China. Yeah. That could be uh, just one quick thing. Uh, one thing that always kind of, kind of amuses me in terms of trade imbalances. So I generally agree with the statement that China, well, China's done incredibly well by our support of them to enter the WTO. That changed the life of 900 million Chinese. And, and that was with U.S. acquiescence. Uh, now I think that's a good thing again for the world to have 900 million people escape poverty. And, you know, it's, it's generally been our policy since the end of World War II to try to promote stability around the world through, you know, prosperity. But putting that aside, what China sends us is their best and brightest scientists year after year. They come to America to study and 85% of them stay here after they've completed their PhD or undergraduate programs. And even the long term, more than I think it's something like 65%, you know, live here their entire lives. Uh, they raise their families here. And it's this first generation, second generation, third generation that are extremely high achieving. You know, they form the backbone of many of our top companies and schools, et cetera. So in terms of unfair trade, you know, we get their top physicists and material scientists and mathematicians. And they get people like me, you know, language students who are going to China to learn, you know, learn Chinese for the year and drink cheap beer. The, the exchange is not fair at all. And in the information economy, you know, getting hold of the brightest minds in the world is worth so much more than, you know, who buys whose flat screen TV. Uh, and so I, I always find that kind of funny that we don't recognize what a great deal America has gotten for a generation. And so cutting that off, I find just tragic that what we think somehow we're on the wrong side of this deal, but we've had the best deal ever. I yeah, totally agree on, on, on the importance of, of getting amazing, amazing people. I want to switch gears for, for a moment. In addition to having the, the China-US perspective, uh, Ching Yuan is also fairly active in deep tech. Can you, can you talk about that? Yeah, it's something, uh, if you look at our fund, there I think there are three things that make us different from other funds. The first is obviously a large part of our fund has a China-US connection. So specifically, we've the founding team, I think it's 65% of our founding teams have a Chinese co-founder. 74% of our founding teams have PhD co-founders. Uh, but the final piece, we're pretty, you know, overweight in US terms on deep tech or frontier tech. Uh, and so it's an area that we like. And just, you know, there are different definitions of what that means. Some people put AI into that. I'm talking more about material science, you know, some of the life sciences, et cetera. Um, but just to understand why it's related to the China focus and also to where we came from. Uh, so first, I mentioned before, China's got a much larger manufacturing sector. And then the ancillary sectors, like the logistics sector is 2% of the U.S. economy, but it's 12% of the Chinese economy. And so anything like robotics and automation and anything that has to do with manufacturing process will be much bigger there. And, you know, as a result of that, there's a funding environment that is more receptive to these kinds of deals there. And also you can find customers and partners there more easily. But secondly, uh, remember I mentioned that we started as a club of engineers and entrepreneurs that graduated from Tsinghua University. And that means that there was a huge variety of disciplines that we had from day one. And so in our current partnership, you have people like Ning Li, who's a material scientist. Uh, she was co-founder of Petuum, the AI company based in Pittsburgh. Uh, Biao He, who for the last 18 years has been a professor at UCSF in oncology. Um, he just left his position to invest full time. 
He also built one of the largest uh, uh, oncology uh, testing companies that's now operating in China and is, is going to list next year. Uh, Steve Sun, uh, he's a neurobiologist. He built GeneWiz, which is one of the top CROs for genetic testing uh, based in New Jersey, uh, which was just sold for $450 million last year. Uh, Michael Jin is a biomechanical engineer. He built IWAT, which is a chip company. Um, so we started with all of these kind of deep tech scientists on our bench anyway. And so the combination of China being a very receptive place to uh, you know, understand deep tech and find partnerships, and then our partnership itself had some background interest. Uh, so we felt like this was an advantage of ours. We can evaluate these deals. And when these companies grow up, we can often help them by finding customers for them, especially in China, that may want to use their technology and accelerate them a little bit. Is deep tech an area that will still be on the upswing going forward? A few years ago, VCs were burned due to a lot of investments in clean tech, batteries, et cetera. Everything that I say, obviously, the grain of salt is we like the area. So I might be overly optimistic. I might just be representing our own view. But I do think there are some areas that have the tailwinds uh, that should propel them in the next funding cycle. So a couple areas that I see in particular, batteries and energy storage is obvious. Um, you know, the rise of EVs uh, means that I think it's something like the internal combustion engine drivetrain is something like $350 billion of components per year. Uh, that's not the value of the cars. That's just the components every year. Uh, all of that is going to be gone and replaced by batteries and sensors and motors. Uh, and then batteries in particular, there's a surge in innovation. Uh, it's not a category, again, that a lot of US VCs really love these days. Uh, and so there are a lot more foreign funding sources or government funding sources um, that are filling that gap. Uh, but we like it. Uh, so in our last fund, we had four different battery companies. Our next fund, we expect to have a few as well. The next area that is quite popular in the U.S. is genetic sequencing. And then uh, there's upstream and downstream applications for this. In our current portfolio or uh, in our previous portfolio, we had two different fourth generation sequencers. So basically... Uh, taking the cost of a full genetic sequence down to sub $100 and being able to get results in a couple of hours. So you make this something that will just get done with every clinical visit. Uh, we have Mission Bio, which is single cell, uh, single cell sequencing analysis and precision medicine, uh, single cell sorters. So that whole area is changing everything. Uh, we even, uh, most recently, uh, we invest in Cardia Bio, which is CRISPR. So genetic analysis on a chip. And again, you know, when when I first started looking at these deals, I thought, well, genetic sequencing, once you get it this cheap and this fast, we're only going to have our, our genes sequenced, you know, a couple times in our life at most. But then you start to realize, huh, you know, every virus has its own genetic sequence. Um, so these COVID tests are essentially an application of this. We're getting tested all the time these days. And so the uses just keep multiplying. And so the ability to have uh, your genes tested and then design, a, you know, the, the right treatment um, is going to be ubiquitous, be very common. And so that's an area that's on the rise and spurring the development of a lot of other frontier tech. And then finally, and I alluded to this, I'll call this just X on a chip. Um, so basically the improvement in foundries and the improvement in signal processing in particular has uh, led to a lot of really interesting miniaturization and mass production capabilities that we didn't see before. So a couple of the most interesting uh, investments in our fund, we have a company called MetaLens, 
which is uh, a camera on a chip developed out of Harvard. And, you know, again, if you think you can reduce uh, uh, iPhones have almost $60 worth of camera equipment in them, um, that will all be shrunk down to, you know, much, much smaller uh, amount of money and much, much smaller form factor with much greater capabilities quite soon. And those will replace mostly conventional optics. We also have a company called XMEMS, uh, which is a speaker on a chip. Uh, so essentially the AirPods that you have, uh, the chip in the, it'll, the, the membrane in there will be replaced by a chip and software. Uh, I just mentioned CRISPR on a chip, uh, which is crazy. So a chip that can directly read biology. Uh, and we also have ultrasound on a chip with Colo Medical, LiDAR on a chip, which is Quantergy, which is now a multi-billion dollar company. Uh, so this whole area of basically the software improvement and the improvement in MEMS processes uh, and semiconductor processes is leading to a revolution. So there's, there's a few areas I think are are pretty interesting, and uh, I'm excited to see how they develop over time. I think it's not just us. I think that others will also get get hold of this this wave as well. Totally. I want to be sensitive to your, your time. We've covered a lot of uh, great ground here. Is there anything else you wanted to, to cover today? You know, just to kind of bring it back to uh, to the original topics, you know, I think that when, when I first arrived in China, which was 1992, uh, there was a period where the internet was just getting going in the U.S., uh, say between 95 and 99, when those of us sitting in China would just look to the U.S. and the first Chinese internet companies were kind of direct copies. So you had Yahoo in America, then you had Sohu in China. You had eBay in, in the U.S., and then you had EachNet in China. And it was one-to-one, -one, just copy, copy, copy. And one thing I do think is interesting, uh, and not really necessarily a topic for us to discuss right now, but now that these two markets have reached almost parity, you are starting to see this cross. You know, I mentioned a couple examples of uh, companies in the U.S. using China to get to scale and coming back to the U.S. Uh, but TikTok coming into the U.S. is kind of the first example of U.S. consumers experiencing a Chinese model. Uh, and I think we'll see more of those. I now see business plans of people who say they're the Pinduoduo Duo for America. And Pinduoduo, Duo, if you don't know what it is, uh, is a huge e-commerce phenomenon in China that is rapidly catching up to Alibaba. Um, but there are things like this and models. Another company uh, uses QR payments the way you do in China here in the U.S. called Sitcon. Uh, so something I really am interested in is seeing models from elsewhere in the world get rolled out here. Uh, and so it's something that I just think is, is an interesting topic for the future. Will there be a class of U.S. entrepreneurs that starts to look to outside the U.S. for the first time and start to import those models successfully? Totally. That's a, that's a great place to wrap. Uh, for people who uh, want to go deeper, Eric, uh, where, where can they uh, learn more about your work and, uh, and Xingyuan as well, as well? Yeah, so I really welcome it. Uh, so I think the easiest thing is to connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm Eric Rosenblum. I'm easy to find. Uh, and then we also have a Qinyuan Ventures site, and we publish pretty frequently about you know our portfolio, what's going on, our theories about China and the U.S., deep tech, all these things that we're talking about. Uh, love we love to publish on. Awesome. Well, we're we're super uh, grateful that we're in Turing together, and excited to excited to do more. And we rec recommend that any founders and and co investors uh, you know, work with uh, with Eric and Qinyuan. Uh, Eric, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Eric, thank you. Really appreciate the time. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.